several years ago, I read a very helpful book on the nature of sin. Uh, the, the title of this book is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. I wouldn't call this leisurely reading, uh, rather heavy reading, because of the topic that it tackles. Fittingly entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. When we look around at the world that we all occupy, we see through the brokenness, through the pain, through the hurt, Things are not the way it's supposed to be. Something has gone drastically wrong, and we instinctively know it. In his book, Cornelius Plantinga provides this definition of sin, a word that we use a lot in the church, but sometimes don't seek to define well. Here's how he defines sin. All sin has first and finally a Godward force. We have offended God. First and foremost, we have grieved him. Sin is any act, any thought, any desire, any emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. Sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. He then goes on to speak of the pervasiveness of sin, the way that it spreads, the way that it advances in our lives and in our culture. And he likens it to pollution, like a contaminant that has hit water and spreads. It's pervasive, corrupting all that it contacts. It is this rapidly advancing nature of sin that we see up close and personal this morning as we continue our series in the book of Genesis that we've entitled God the Creator and the Redeemer. We've been walking through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We started that in January. We hope to finish it at the end of May. God the Creator and Redeemer. Here we see a sobering picture of the way sin advances and it escalates. Evil is advancing and God is preparing his righteous response. Evil is advancing, and God is preparing his righteous response. So let's turn on our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 5. Genesis chapter 6 on page 5. If you happen to need a Bible, we always mention this in the lobby. There are black hardback Bibles. You're welcome to take one. Uh, please do so. Give one to a friend if he or she needs one. Genesis 6. Page 5, I'll read verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry they had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out 
man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See a progression in this passage. There's a progression, an identifiable progression. We see advancing evil in verses one through five. We see God's grief as a result of that evil in verse six, and then God's plan in verses seven and eight. Advancing evil gives way to God's grief, which gives way to God's plan. And the central idea of this sermon is that God responds to evil with judgment and grace. God responds to evil with judgment and grace. So first in the progression, advancing evil. See this in verses one through five. Evil is advancing. And the picture here in verses one through five is both sobering and perplexing. There are a lot of question marks here in verses one through five. We read in verse one, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So this seems like it's fulfilling the creation mandate that God gives humanity in Genesis chapter one, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. That's a good mandate, a good command. Be fruitful and multiply, exercise right and good authority over it. Is that what's happening here? Yes and no. They're multiplying. Progeny is being created, but authority is being abused. More and more people propagating, but what they're propagating is sinfulness, rebellion, the wrong use of God's given authority. They are not producing the fruit that should come from the right use of authority, for they are abusing that authority through perversion and exploitation. Perversion and exploitation of God's good gifts. It's that perversion and exploitation that we encounter next in this passage. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive or, or good to the eye is what that means, attractive. And so they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, let me just say, pages and pages and pages have been written about what we read here in the first few chapters, first few verses of chapter 6. We're not entirely sure what is going on here. Much is unclear, but something is clear. And what is clear is that God's good gift of sexual intimacy is being perverted through exploitation. God's good gift of sexually Sexual intimacy to be celebrated and enjoyed in the protective confines of the covenant of marriage is being perverted through exploitation. We're less clear on the finer details. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of man? Who are their offspring, the, the Nephilim? I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we will be operating in the land of speculation. But let me put forth just a couple possibilities for you to chew on and to do some research on your own. Uh, possibility one, what we read here are angel-human interactions. Angel-human interactions. 
the sons of God, most often in the, New, in the Old Testament, refers to angels. So Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1, God's cohort of angels, they're referred to as sons of God. Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, that phrase, sons of gods, can refer to angels. Daughters of man, in this possibility, just, just human beings, non-angel, just human beings, through the lineage of both Seth and Cain that we see, going back to Genesis 4 and 5, just human beings. And the interactions between angels and human beings produce this sort of supernatural Nephilim, these tall beings, giants with supernatural power. Some problems with this. The New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, said that angels aren't, do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. And God's resulting judgment on this alleged angel-human intercourse, this relationship, the judgment is all on men. It says nothing about angels. It's just, it's just poured out on men through the flood. And so angels would seem in this possibility to kind of get off scot-free. Possibility two, these are tyrannical human kings that are having their way with commoners, taking women, pillaging, marrying at their free will and whim. A former professor of mine, Gordon Hugenberger, who pastored Park Street Church in Boston for about two decades, uh, this was the, the view that he taught us in, in school. I, I think it is compelling. There are question marks. I think it is compelling. The term sons of God in the ancient Near East can be referred to kings. Pharaoh, for example, is spoken of in self-deifying ways. You see this later in the Greco-Roman world. Caesar is referred to as being divine, the, the sons of God. So human kings throughout history have been referred to as the son of a God or sons of God, self-deifying titles. And then the daughters of men in this possibility would just be non-royal, commoner women that these royal tyrants are just taking at their own whim. I'm not exactly sure. What is clear is that this is an exploitative perversion of God's good gift of sex to be celebrated in his good gift of marriage. Distortions, perversions of what God gives, of his, his gifts. There's a parallel here between Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and what happens in Genesis 6, verse 2. A parallel between seeing what is good and taking for your own pleasure. Genesis 3, 6, Eve saw that the fruit was good, and she took, and she gave some to her husband, and he took and ate. Seeing what is good, taking what you shouldn't. Genesis 6, verse 2, the sons of God saw what was good. The word attractive in Hebrew is good. They, they saw that the daughters were good and they took. Seeing what is good, taking against God's command. There's a, there's a direct parallel here between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. Something good in God's creation is being exploited, taken on humans' terms in a rebellious way. That's what we see. And it happens to be the good gift of sexual intimacy and the good gift of marriage, the protective confines 
that God's designed for it to be celebrated and enjoyed. Sex is a good gift of God to be rightly enjoyed in the protective confines of the covenant of marriage. We addressed this a few weeks. This is such an important topic. I'll use the same illustration. Perhaps you've heard this, perhaps you haven't. Sex is a good gift of God to be celebrated, valued, cherished in the protected confines of the covenant of marriage. And friends, the value of an entity is seen in how that entity is protected. I mentioned getting a chance to go to France with Laura a number of years ago, going to the Louvre. I love art history. There's one painting that is more protected than any other one. And you know what it is, the Mona Lisa. And it's not a massive canvas, it's just, it's tiny. And the line to get into it is very long. It's super protected. Why? Because of its value. The value of an entity determines its protection. And so it is with sex. God, teenagers in here, young adults in here, God isn't being an angry old uncle by withholding sex from you and making you wait till marriage. He's a good and kind father who knows when that gift is to be rightly celebrated and enjoyed. The value of an entity is seen in how it's protected. What we do, though, is like grabbing the Mona Lisa out of its protected confines in the Louvre, away from its security, and putting it on the corner of Beach Street and Trapello for any passerby to come touch, rip, fold, whatever. That's not where that valuable gift is to be celebrated and enjoyed. It needs to be in the protected confines of the covenant of marriage. That's where it is safe. That's where it is celebrated and enjoyed to the fullest as God designs it. What is being distorted and perverted is God's good gift of sex and his good gift of marriage. Not premarital sex, not adultery, not polygamy, not homosexuality. These are all distortions of God's good gift. But monogamous marriage, one man, one woman, in the covenant of marriage until death do them part or Christ comes again. That's God's intent. And it's being woefully distorted and perverted here. As a result of this exploitation of God's good design of sexual intimacy, we witness the escalation of sin's consequence. In verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 days. If you're reading in context, Genesis 5, the days of men and women were 750, 800, 850 plus years. Suddenly we have a shortening of men and women's lifespans here as a result of their sin. It's tied to their sinfulness. So escalating sin yields escalating consequences. That's what we see here. So Genesis 3, sin enters the world. The consequence is death, both a spiritual death, a separation from God, and a physical death. They don't die the day that they eat of the fruit, but they will die. And as we see, Adam and Eve and their progeny, they live long lives, 800 plus years. And then as sin escalates, so do the consequences. Such that we see in here, their lifespan is shortened to 120 years. Escalating sin yields escalating consequences. 120 years, if you're reading your Bible in succession, you understand that that's a ballpark figure. Abraham, Father Abraham, lived to be longer, older than 120 years. He was 175 years. This is a ballpark, generalized figure. 
Escalating sin yields escalating consequences. Now we see the offspring of these exploitative interactions. The Nephilim, verse 4, were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men and women. Superhuman beings, the offspring of angels and humans, maybe. Giants, likely. There's a reference here to Numbers 13. When God's people are poised to enter the promised land, they go in. And they see these Canaanites in these walled cities who are tall and fierce warriors, and they cower in fear. The Nephilim is used in that context. Likely, they were tall, bigger people. Which, if you're going back to the possibility that these are the offspring of royal tyrants, guess who ate best in the ancient world? Guess who had the best nutrition and therefore bigger, healthier people? The royal folks, the ones who had the resources. So it's possible that this, this taller, fiercer, better trained warriors, these were the lineage of royal people who had the means to feed and have healthy nutrition. What we know is that they're called mighty men. Fierce warriors is the idea with a reputation. Men of renown. They were known. Fierce Likely violent, and it's likely tied to what we see in Genesis 6, verse 11. The Lord saw that the earth was filled with violence. These mighty men are fierce warriors prone to perpetrate violence. And now this summary statement that we see of humanity's advanced evil in verse 5. Sobering, sobering statement. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The NIV, which is the Bible I grew up reading, says only evil all the time. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. What a description. What an indictment. And compare and contrast this phrase, the Lord saw. The Lord saw. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Right after his creative activity, Genesis 1, 30, verse 31, the Lord saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Five chapters later, Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What a contrast in what the Lord scans and sees. It was very good. It was very wicked. Sin has entered the world and it changes everything. Not the way it's supposed to be. Not the way it's supposed to be. And it grieves God's heart. So advancing evil gives way to God's grief. The second part of the progression of this passage. Advancing evil gives way to God's grief. Notice the window into God's heart. The tenderness of his heart that you see here. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, God grieves over your sin. God grieves over my sin. I'll use the language, God, his heart breaks over our sin. This is what we would call an anthropomorphism. 
It's a mouthful. Anthropomorphism. Does God have a heart? No. Jesus did, God in the flesh, yes, but does God have a... No, not, not literally, not physically, but this anthropomorphic language is speaking of the divine in human terms such that humans can understand the divine. The core of God's being, his heart, that, that emotive center grieves, breaks over his creature's sinfulness. That's what we see here. God's heart breaks over our sin. What you do behind closed doors, what you watch, how you speak, how you gossip, harsh to a spouse or a neighbor or a child, what, it grieves God's heart. It's bitter to him. Oh, and it's got to be bitter to you for any change to happen. Does your sin grieve you? Oh, it grieves God's. It grieves God's. Don't make light of sin in your life. Take sin seriously. That's the road of repentance. Take sin seriously. It grieves God's heart. May it grieve yours. God's heart breaks over our sin. Here we have a little picture of God suffering on man's account. It's a little glimmer, a little foretaste of the gospel, a foretaste of the cross where Jesus, God in the flesh, will suffer on man's account as a result of our sin. God's heart is breaking. It broke at the cross in greatest fashion. God's grief moves him to action. So we see advancing evil gives way to God's grief. Thirdly and finally, God's grief gives way to God's plan. Verses 7 and 8. Let's look together at those two verses, 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Notice the shocking contrast in these two verses. Destruction in verse 7 collides with favor in verse 8. Judgment in verse 7 collides with grace in verse 8. It is, it's a shocking collision. Judgment and grace, destruction and favor. But first we see this picture of destruction in verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out. That means to wipe out. To wipe out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I've made them. Wiped out, blotted out. Notice the creation here is suffering on man's account. Creeping things, birds of the heavens, they're all going to be wiped out. Creation shares man's doom and his redemption. We see this in Romans chapter 8. All creation longs for the revealing and the redemption of the sons of God. All creation is going to be restored when Christ comes and finalizes his redemptive work. They're included in the doom and in the flood that we're about to see. They're also included in the restoration as well. All creation suffers on man's account. This cosmic judgment that is coming next week when the waters of God's wrath will pour out upon man's sinfulness. And yet, in the face of that judgment, we see a glimmer of hope, don't we? Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is distinguished from 
all of humanity here at this point. He finds favor with God. God has set his grace on Noah, Genesis 6, verse 9, like Enoch before him in Genesis 5, Noah walks with God. We talked last week, what does it mean to walk with God? It means to have a relationship with him marked by trust and obedience. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham walks with God. That descriptive phrase follows patriarchs, describes their relationship of intimacy and obedience and trust with him. Noah will demonstrate his trust and obedience in the Lord by a ridiculous building project. A building project, massive box. The boat was a box, just do the dimensions on it. Giant box that his neighbors mocked him over. You're crazy, Noah. No, Noah was obedient. Noah trusted in the word of his Lord and it set him apart from all of humanity. And through his trust and obedience, Noah will indeed be a deliverer. He will provide a way of salvation through the outpouring of God's wrath, the waters of God's wrath that will come upon humanity's evil. Noah will provide a way of salvation. And Noah will serve as a shadow that gives way to the substance of Jesus Christ, one who's pointing forward to a greater deliverer, who through his obedience will provide a way of salvation, not through an ark that he will build, but through a cross that he will carry. Jesus Christ, a greater deliverer that Noah points to, a better way of salvation, not through an ark, but through another wooden implement, a cross. Here we see the collision of judgment and grace. We see it at the flood, outpouring of judgment, but God's grace saves a few. See it at the flood, you see it at the cross. Judgment and grace collide. Author Derek Kidner writes this about the collision. This is God's characteristic way to deal with evil, to meet it not with half measures, but with simultaneous extremes of judgment and salvation. God responds to human evil with judgment and grace. And the place where we most clearly see it is at the cross, where judgment and grace collide together at the cross. How is that so? Because, friends, a penalty was paid. God just didn't sort of wipe away the penalty. No, no, he meted out the judgments, but not on those who deserved it. It all fell on Christ's shoulders. The waters of God's wrath poured out heavily on Christ's shoulders. And his mercy is displayed there as well because those who deserve that judgment didn't get it. We go free. Those who trust in Christ go free. Mercy and judgments collide at the cross. This is God's way of sinners. Two ways to live. Will we trust and obey the Lord of salvation? Or will we refuse and reject him, bearing our own judgment? Friends, one way or another, judgment's going to fall. It's either going to fall on Christ for you if you trust in him, or one day it's going to fall on your head if you don't trust on him. One way or another, it's coming. You're shielded from it in Christ by faith. We have an opportunity this morning to see pictured the waters of God's judgment through the gift of baptism. Two brothers who are gonna come in just a moment and share their testimony of how they came to trust in Jesus Christ, who bore 
all of God's wrath that they deserved, he bore it. He experienced the full outpouring, which is what was imaged in baptism. Jesus was buried. God's wrath overwhelmed him, and then he came to life on the third day. It's imaged in baptism, the waters of judgment, death, burial, and then resurrection by the power of God.